0: has pushed its way against the southeastern shore of the sea. The remnants of a night before that that many will find unexplainable. A storm of epic proportions. Just when everyone was trying to tie down whatever shutters, windows, doors, anything outside. A silence, more frightening, more eerie than the storm itself, took over the night sky. The sun has now come up and the fog hangs on the hillside. The lens of chapter 5 pulls us to where we don't want to go. One by one, tombstones start to pass. An old thicket of trees that have, that have uh, long been unkept, that are, that are uncared for, now just a twisted gnarl of limbs and branches. Weeds grow up around everything, a cemetery where no one dares to walk. As the last wisp of fog breaks across the lens of chapter 5, for the first time, we see him, a silhouette at this point, feet hanging over the limestone cliffs, jostling something in his right hand. And as the camera pulls to the side, we see a large stone rounded on one side And jagged on the other end. And he lifts it to his chest, and with a bicep that flexes, a forearm that bulges, he plunges it into his flesh. He begins to tear. Blood starts to run down his chest, and and somewhere in the middle, he, he tries to go deeper to end it all, but the breastbone stops him. His hand trembles and opens, and the stone tumbles down the cliff to the ground. That's when his eyes see them for the first time. Someone has dared to approach his beach. His eyes are wild, his hair is long, his beard is matted. He looks more animalistic than human. And with a twitch of his entire body in motion, he starts to run. And there's no trail, there's no beaten path. He goes right through the thickets and through the thorns and and the cacti as as if the flesh doesn't feel pain anymore. He runs, arms flailing. The camera of chapter 5 frantically tries to keep up with him. And from the backside, we realize the, the amount of beatings and scars on a man that is fully naked. On the shore, there are 13. They've done this many times before. Those sitting in the bow of the the small wooden boat will get out somewhere around the knee-deep water. They'll use the propulsion of the oars from behind them and the momentum of the small wooden craft to pull it up onto the rocky shoreline. Those that follow will be able to get out onto dry ground. They have no idea what's storming down the hillside toward them. They've just left one storm, and they're going to find themselves in another. And this story that takes so many twists and turns, I, I wrestle with what even the title of this today, so I just put on your, on your life notes, the scariest Jesus story ever. And yet next to that, I want you to write there, take your pencil, your writing utensil, your pen, I want you to write times three. Times three. We're going to find three different areas of fear, one that you may find yourself in today, as this story, as wild as it starts, ends in an astonishing fashion. We're in chapter five. We started uh, uh, back in October. We finished four chapters in our series on the book of Mark. We're gonna be in it for a while. Maybe till Jesus comes again, I don't know. We're looking at the life and story of Jesus as told by, uh, by eyewitnesses. And if you don't have a pen to write with, raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring you a pen we're going to look at these stories that Mark got from eyewitnesses, predominantly Peter. Peter was his primary source for Mark's gospel. Those that walked with him, those that, that heard the words that we see written in red. And if you hadn't gotten the first, uh, the first, I don't know, what are we in? What does it say there? This is number 14. If you haven't gotten the first 13 of these, you can always go back and pick them up on our podcast online through our website or through your podcast platforms. And we want to welcome those that are, that are listening to us on podcast today. During the months of May through September, when I wasn't even preaching, we had over 700 downloads a month of last year's podcasts. So people are listening to us, and and literally all over the world, 22 different countries are tuning in to what's being taught here at Sky Valley, what you're supporting through your giving to Sky Valley Ministries. So Mark chapter 5, let's go. We're going to start here. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, Now, some of you may be saying, don't go there. But we've got five verses of Scripture that scream off the page, go there, go there. Folks, this book, this book is real stories about real people. This guy isn't some fable. He isn't some fairy tale. This man man that, that, that Bob just sang about, that we're talking about here, that we're studying, he actually lived and walked on this earth. These are real stories, and everything that we see here says, go there, walk among the tombs, understand where he lives, understand coming from a Jewish culture, everything about this story, everything is unclean. Where he lives, who he is, the fact that he's naked, the fact that he has demons within him. The fact that the nearby townspeople have tried to bind him before. They've tried to beat him. They've tried to chain him. But there's a a superpower within him which is not human. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And in the midst of the cutting and the carving, which, by the way, isn't new, is it? It's some 2,000 years old. Many of us have loved ones, who have struggled with this idea that, that somewhere inside there's a pain, there's an hurt, there's an identity, and there's nothing that you can do about it. But you pick away at the outside. You cut away on the outside. And although it is 2,000 years old, some of us do that physically. Some of us do it emotionally. Some of us do it relationally. We sabotage whatever is supposed to be good in purpose and value in our lives. There's something in our, in our life that, that we see is not good, something that does not have purpose, and that has taken value from us. And night and day, this man lives in a cemetery, and he carves and he cuts, and Mark gives more description of who this man is What has been done in his past? The chains have been broken. What he has done to himself than any other thing in the story. Mark is pleading with us, go there. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, someone's dared to come to my beach. He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. Now, it doesn't say it in the Scripture here, but i got to think that there are no longer 13 on the shore. I think there's one standing on the shore, and the other 12 guys are as far back in the boat as they can get. We just left a storm last week of, of epic proportions. That scared them to death. Seasoned fishermen thought they were going to drown. See, they knew that Jesus was in the boat, but they didn't know the Jesus that was in the boat. And now they know they're on shore, but they have no idea the Jesus that's on shore with them. And the demon-possessed man yells out. And we have one of the clearest and best titles of Jesus so far in Mark's gospel. The disciples are starting to figure out who he is, and they still don't get it. The townspeople aren't quite figuring out who he is, and they don't get it. The religious leaders certainly haven't figured out who he is, and they don't get it. But a demon-possessed man, he's good with titles. A demon-possessed man who screams out, what do you want with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. And then catch this, swear to God, that you won't torture me. Now, you can't get God on your side and swear by God if you're talking to Jesus, okay? But I think the demons understand clearly who they are in front of, who they're dealing with. This isn't much of a battle. They they clearly know that their end is coming at the end of the story. Maybe this is a plea to, to God himself. You know, Our time to be tortured hasn't come yet. Don't torture us prematurely. Verse 8 tells us, For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And if there was a place for the hair on the back of your neck to stand up, it's there. These first century readers of Mark's Gospels would have understood this. Those hearing this story would have known that a a Roman army can only be called legion if it mustered more than 5,000 men. Now, I'm not saying, nor nor do I think he's saying, that there were 5,000 actual demons in him. He was demon-possessed. I don't think you can take a demon's word as truth, okay? I think it's pretty good to keep in mind, but I think clearly that what what he's stating is we are many, You're not tangling with just one. You're tangling with a whole lot. Verse 10 says, And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. So stop. Get it. We've got a naked man in the tombs, cutting himself, sitting in the gravel, screaming, begging not to be tortured, not to leave the area. And you have the short power confrontation between the Son of God and this man, the demons. A name is asked for, it's not given, just a size. And they beg to be thrown into the pigs. And Jesus allows this. Demons leave the man, go into the herd of 2,000 pigs, and they stampede. And I don't know what a stampede of pigs looks like. But the stampede of pigs runs off of the cliff into the bay. The original Bay of Pigs. The boys that are watching the pigs, probably young teenage boys, their only job is to keep the pigs safe, to keep the pigs in front of them. Pigs have jumped off the cliff, so now they got to go tell the elders, hey, we lost the pigs. That's a huge loss for this city, 2,000 head of pigs. We're talking about an income source in that day and time that is mammoth, and it's gone. And can you imagine sitting at the, at the city gate where all the business of the town is done and the elders would be there as these young boys come, and, come running up and say, we got no pigs, we got no pigs. And they go, what do you mean you got no pigs? We lost the pigs. Well, how many pigs did you lose? All of them. All of them. How do you lose 2,000 pigs? They can't run fast. The townspeople come out in verse 15. It says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. And we're going to see that Jesus gets in the boat. If you thought the scariest story had to do with a naked guy cutting himself, running from the tombs, maybe that was fear factor number one. But fear factor number two, the scariest thing I know about Jesus is that he will row away from you if you don't want him. Whatever his plan was for the life, whatever his purpose was for being there, he will now row away because he's not welcome. The people looked at what had happened. They, they have these young boys tell them what had happened, and they don't need to hear any words in red. You've already cost us too much, Jesus of Nazareth. We don't care who you are and, and what you're selling. Be gone with you. You can leave. Or oh, we'll stand in line for a Jesus who will bless us financially. We don't like lining up for a Jesus That may cost us. And Jesus seems to care about the salvation of one soul more than he does the entire economy of that town. If that's what it takes to prove a point to win someone, well, dollars and cents don't seem to make sense to Jesus when eternity is on the line. If he had shown up with bags of gold, if he had shown up promising riches, I'm sure he would have been invited in. I'm sure he would have had dinner in the finest homes. I'm sure he would have been ushered around town to speak to whatever crowds he wanted to speak to. But this God may cost me? And he gets in the boat, and they begin to row away. Watch what happens. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now, the Decapolis is this region of these ten towns on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was the region of the Gentiles. He went going throughout the Decapolis, telling how much Jesus had done for him. This enemy from the grave and and what happens in the short story, I think unlocks many things for us. Some things that, that we need to know about ourselves and about who this God is. So take your life notes and follow with me and write this down. First off, Satan's plan is to distort and destroy God's image. Satan's plan is to distort and destroy God's image. I hope you understand that. There's an enemy that is alive and well, and there is such a thing as spiritual warfare that the Bible talks about. There is a realm of spirituality beyond what we can see with our naked eyes, with our visual eyes, with our physical eyes. There's something that that we don't get in the natural. It's supernatural, as the Bible makes clear. But we have to understand it, and understand, first of all, that Satan's plan is to distort and destroy the image of God. This starts on page three of the book, by the way. Remember page one, this incredible big bang that exploded everything into being and the galaxies that are still moving away from specific point in time today? The voice of a creator that spoke creation into being, an unmade maker that made. Page one and two, to make us, to have a, to have a perfect relationship with him, a perfect relationship with each other. He says, but I have to allow choice. I have to allow for wrong if there's going to be love. If God is love, as 1 John tells us, as our God is love, and if he wants us to love him and to love one another, we need to understand that love is a choice. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. So for there to be love in creation, there has to be a choice to not love. There's one tree. That's all you got to stay away from. The world is yours. Just stay away from one stinking tree. Got it? Any other rules? No. Just get to loving each other. I'll be back. You can love me. Pages 1 and 2. Satan slithers his way into the picture in page 3 and says, Did God really say that? Come on. Did God really say that? And folks, we have been struggling with page three ever since. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to. You can make the Bible to agree with whatever lifestyle that you want. There's plenty of resources online and other things to show you how we've gotten it wrong in 2,000 years, how original writing, original scripture doesn't actually say what 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 God meant. And we can go, oh, that's good. Now I can enjoy this and still be with God. It's page three. Did God really say that? From page three on, we have an enemy that wants to distort God's plan. He wants to distort God's hope, God's value in us, God's relationship with us, God's image. And here's where you and I come into play in this great cosmic battle of spiritual warfare you are hated. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are one of the most hated human beings on this planet. You see, if our enemy wants to destroy God's image, he can't touch God, as we just saw in this story. Even legion is no match for the Son of God. For mere words take care of legion. But here's the problem of page 1 and 2. You and I are created in the image of God. You and I are created to be his sons and daughters. And it's like this. If you hate me, the type of hate where you seek to destroy me... But when you get close to me and see the immense size and strength and muscular sculptural makeup of this man, you realize that you can't take me down? What do you do? You go for my kids. I'm untouchable, so you go for my kids. In fact, harming them would do more harm than you doing anything to me physically. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're hated because your sons and daughters and because of what Jesus did on the cross, we're allowed to call him Abba. Papa, Father. And the enemy wants to destroy and distort the image of God. And Mark gives more description, as I said, more definition to where this man is than any other thing that happens in the story. He wants us to see the full result of someone who has completely fallen under the enemy's grasp and power. For a Jewish readership, there is nothing more broken, more wrong, more unclean than a naked man carving the image of God in the tombs next to the unclean swine in the hills. This is the furthest from God as the living could get in first century Jewish thought. And Mark begs us to go there. See, it's number two. If we don't know that we're being attacked, we've lost the battle. If we don't know that we're being attacked, we've lost the battle. So many Christians are oblivious to the spiritual war that's going on. There's no signs of life because we succumb to the world. We succumb to the God, lowercase g, of the world that says, Did God really say that? Is that book really true? Is that really harmful? You can watch this. You can click that. You can do this. You can say that. You can go here. And we may live life outwardly, but inside ourselves, we're living in empty tombs. I threw a bunch of verses under 1, 2, and 3 there. Let me just hit a couple of them, um, but they're all in your notes. Peter himself would later write, we looked at 1 P- Peter all last year, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he said that Satan is alive and well. He says, you need to be alert. You need to be on your guard because your enemy, the devil, goes around prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And this is where most Christians are like, well, that's not me. I'm not a threat to Satan. He's not worried about me. It has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your head. It has to do with whose you are if you're a Christ follower. He comes to distort and destroy the image of God. And when Peter writes to the church, he says, you've got to be aware of this warfare going on. Paul will write in the book of Ephesians, our struggle struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against principalities and powers in this dark world and in the heavenly realms. He said, there's a warfare going on about you because you're a child of God. He goes, if you're not aware of it, I promise you, you've lost the battle. You're falling into the trap and don't even know it. Jesus will say in John chapter 10, 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And Mark writes in chapter 5, he says, Let me show you what a life looks like that's been stolen, its joy and value and worth that's killed off any purpose and is left to be destroyed. Why does Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? I think merely to show that this is the purpose of the enemy. What's a demonic pig good for? Bacon, I guess? I don't know. Demons don't have much use for pigs. What do they do? They run them off a cliff, and that's the end result, is destruction. I don't know what little sin has a foothold in your life. I don't know what little thing in your life you go, well, that's not really a big deal. I mean, I'm pretty good by nature. I mean, most of of what I'm doing is good. I just have this one little thing. This picture screams out, let me show you through the man of the tombs, and through a herd of pigs. This is the end result of that little thing that you allowed to control your life. I love the way Mark Strauss wrote about it. He said, There seems to be two types of people in the church. There are Christians who are practically atheists with absolutely no awareness of spiritual struggle or power in their world or in their life. They neither have an understanding of the Spirit of God's power in their life, nor are they aware of the spiritual battle in the world around them. Christians but living as atheists. He goes, then there's a second group of people that see a demon behind every rock, behind every negative situation. Can't find a parking space at the mall. Oh, Satan must have kept me from my parking space. Maybe it's just Christmas season. What's the balanced solution? It's to acknowledge both the reality of spiritual warfare and the certainty of the outcome and to claim the victory available through the blood of Jesus Christ. This brings us to number three. When it comes to spiritual warfare, there are two sides, but it won't be a fair fight. It won't be a fair fight. Colossians 2.15 says Jesus is disarmed. He's disarmed spiritual rulers. 1 John 4.4 reminds us that greater is he that is in you, than he who is in the world. And technically, on the shoreline, there are two in battle. One falls on his knees and begs not to be tortured, numbers himself as legion, and one stands with questions and with mere words takes care of legion. What a picture of the power of God! And the townspeople towns come out and they find the man fully clothed and in his right mind. Dignity has been restored value is restored, brokenness, scars are covered. And what would we pay to be in our right mind about who we are, about who we're with? Now, the man is still confused about what he's supposed to do, but it's cleared up when the 12 disciples, and this is, who I think, are still back in the back of the boat. They're ready to get out of there. Jesus climbs in the boat, and all of a sudden, he wants to be the 13th disciple. The man of the tombs grabs on, and and he steps one foot in, and he feels a hand on his shoulder. And as he looks up, he's face to face with the one who has just saved him. And he hears these words. There's no room for you here. There's no room for me here. No. You go home and tell your friends and your family what I have done for you and how I have given you mercy. Now, folks, if you've been with us for the past three months, this is the first time that we see this in the book of Mark. All through the book of Mark, through the first four chapters, when Jesus has healed anybody, he specifically has told people what? Don't tell anybody. Don't say anything to anybody. Don't tell anybody. He's healing men with leprosy, and he says, don't tell anybody what happened to you. He goes and he heals other people. He casts out demons and says, don't tell anybody. And now he tells this guy, Go tell everyone. Is this guy more special than others? No. It's where he's at. It's part of his greater mission. It's where he's at. You see, they've left Israel, they've left the land of the Jews, they've crossed the Sea of Galilee, and they're in the southeast corner. They're in the region of the Decapolis, the 10 Greek Roman city, uh, cities. The ten allies who have pledged defense and trade with one another. They're non-Jews. They're Gentiles. And that's why they have pigs, the unclean animals. You see, back in Israel, everyone wants a Messiah. They're looking for Messiah. And they're waiting for Messiah. And everyone wants a political leader that's going to make their life better. And if they find out the Messiah's here, everyone's going to come for the wrong reasons. This has been a theme that we've been looking at throughout, and we're going to look at it next week whenever we see how Jesus separates the crowd from those that are come out, going to come out. Jesus says, I get to define the God I am, not you. We will keep this quiet until I show you that I'm a suffering Messiah who came to die, not to rule. Oh, down here across the sea in the land of the Gentiles, They don't understand the concept of Messiah. They don't have any preconceived conditions on on who they want God to be. So you can go tell everyone what type of God you've found. I take the most unclean, the most broken, the most hopeless, the most outnumbered, and with mere words in red, I bring healing and wholeness. See, this is a call to take it back home. Now get this. This may strike you as interesting, but get this. The focus of our story is not Jesus, but what Jesus has done. Did you catch that? The focus of the story is not Jesus, but what Jesus has done. You see, your past, my past, our past has a purpose. I don't care how wild, how messed up, how crummy, or how pure it was. It's still your story, and it has a purpose in God's economy what we share with others is not who jesus is what we share with others is what jesus has done in my life it's hard for me to argue with people who jesus is and creation but but my story my story here's when here here's when i get a Wanted to get a divorce. Here's here's when I moved out. Here's where we found Jesus, and here's what he's done, and this is why we're here, and this is where we are today. It's all about grace and mercy. See, you can argue with me about creation and, and all that stuff. You can argue about the existence of evil and who God is, but you cannot argue with me about my story. That's my testimony. That's the truth. The Bible calls him the man who had been demon-possessed. The Bible won't give him a name. The Bible will give him a past and tell him to use that past. That's who you are, that's what you're known for. Now go use it, go and share that. Go tell them what I've done for you. I want you to take it home. Your past, your past will be Satan's greatest weapon against you or God's most powerful tool for you. Your past is truth about you and that truth can be used to bring your guilt and shame and and, and leave you in the tombs. Or that truth can lead you to a higher one of what Christ wants to do with someone like you. And now it's a truth that no one can refute. He says, I want you to take this home. You see, living out our faith at home is going to be three things. We're going to cover these quickly. One, it's going to be hardest for us to do. Living the truth at home is going to be hardest for us to do uh, because home is where we live, we work, we play. Home is, uh, I'm using the definition here, it's, it's, it's wherever we are best known. For those of you that have a family, it's literally your home with your family there. Maybe if you're a single adult now, it's those who know you best. Wherever you are known best, that's where Jesus sends this guy you're not coming on the boat. We don't need a 13th disciple. I want you to go home to family and friends that know you. They know your story. They know your past. It's gonna be hardest for us to do, and you know why? Because home is where it's going to be most real for others. It's going to be most real for others. They know who you are. They know where you've come from. You see, this is, this is where it's going to be real because you can walk down the street and you can tell everybody about Jesus and the difference, but, but those that know your life, those that know you, they'll know whether there's been a real change or not. You see, living this out at home will also be the place of greatest impact. In Matthew 5, when Jesus calls us to be light, he says we're to, we're to be a flavor, we're to be a preservative to the world around us. We should be a light in a dark world, drawing people Not to how good we are, but drawing people to God. But when Jesus says, here's what I want you to do to be a light, he says, for no one lights the lamp and puts it under a bushel. No, they let the light shine so the whole house can see it. I want you to take this home. It's Jesus' first time that we know of in the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. The crowd takes one look at his power and says, get out of here. Not with our pigs you don't. And it's funny how we will allow for some evil in our lives, but we won't stand for the full power of God to take our lives. Be gone, Jesus. It costs too much. And Jesus goes back to Jewish territory and doesn't reach the Gentile world. Or does he? Can I show you something before we go? Just a few more minutes. Before we go, I want to show you what, what Paul Harvey would say the rest of the story. We're going to go there in a few weeks, but I just can't leave without going just forward a couple chapters and just pointing us out to you because it connects. Just a few pages later in Mark chapter 7, verse 31. It says, Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. Now, Tyre is up like where modern-day Beirut is, okay? So he's up here north uh, north of uh, of, uh, of Israel. He's up in the region of Tyre. And it says, he left the vicinity of Tyre. He went down through Sidon, which is near Tyre, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. So he's back over in that region again. Two chapters from now, Jesus is going to go back. Last time, remember, they kicked him out of town. Then it goes on in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. It says, during those days, another large crowd gathered. Don't miss that. Another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus calls his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. Now, it's a long story here. I'm not going to read through all the scriptures there. Go back and read it this afternoon, Mark chapter 8, and remember Mark chapter 5. The disciples say, we're in this remote place. Can we get any food? I don't want to give it all away because we're going to get there in a couple of weeks. But he told everybody to sit down. He took this little lunch. He broke it. He gave thanks. They had bread, a few small fish. He gave thanks, and then he distributed it to them. In verse 8 of chapter 8, the people ate, and, and they were satisfied. And the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of leftovers out of 4,000 men present. And that, that's 4,000 men they're counting. There were women and children there, I'm sure, as well. So Jesus comes to an area of people that that don't want anything to do with him. He simply rose away, but he leaves one man. He leaves one man who's simply called by his past, the man who had been possessed by legion, this man of the tombs. And the next time Jesus comes to that shore, 4,000 men come out to see him, to hear what he has to say. And it's not stated in Scripture, but my bet is that in the middle of that crowd sitting with a goofy Jesus grin on his face. There's a man that doesn't even try to hide his wrists that are scarred, or his chest, or his arms where he used to cut himself. And he sees Jesus, and he simply says, I brought some friends today, I hope you got some food. They're not leaving until they find what I found. You know, I don't know how else to to explain how a region kicks him out and then just two chapters later accepts him with 4,000 people waiting for him. Except that the third scariest thing in our story is that Jesus has left you and me where we are with our scars to show what he has done. Because he cares about your friends, he cares about your family, he cares about your neighbors, he cares about your coworkers. What a story! Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.